So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Save them from disruption. All these MBAs don't know what they're doing. We're going to be the ones that are going to save you from, from you know, we, we, we're the innovators, the entrepreneurs. And so what happened was this, this innovator was creating a necessary tension between the innovation team that he was leading and the organization. And innovation is already hard by itself without people that are actively rooting for you to fail. And so he had created people that were actively rooting for him to fail. And the moment that he recognized this was a few years later when he Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Tendai Viki. Tendai, thanks for making time for this. Thank you. Really looking forward to the conversation, Jim. So it was fun. I think it was last month we had uh, Alex Osterwalder on and, and talking a little bit about some stuff from Strategizer and love to have you talk about your involvement there and, and as well your books. Yeah, I know. It's, it's fun. I mean, Alex is a really great mentor to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a young emerging thought leader. And so it's nice to be to have somebody who's like at that stature, sort of mentoring and, 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 and kind of giving you guidance. My role there is really to try and help build out the practice, especially around corporate innovation and, you know, you know, making sure that, you know, all the tools and processes that we create then become practically applicable within the organizations that we work with. Yeah. So you've written a couple books here, Lean Product Cycle, Corporate Startup, but why don't we, why don't we start with Pirates in the Navy? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my latest book. Yeah. It's a, it's a play on Steve Jobs, right? You know, Steve Jobs said it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. And I just thought, well, you know, since large corporations have to innovate nowadays, it's probably not a, you know, a, a distinction that's useful anymore. It's probably better to be a pirate in the Navy and try and, you know, make those two worlds work together and, and understand each other a little better. So it sounds like the book's been really well received. I'm seeing the sticker on here for Thinkers 50. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is exciting. I mean, the book, so the book has been, has been well received. I think there's a it's a combination of the clickbaity kind of title of, of the book, but also people like the content inside. I think they find that it resonates with really the, the you know the honesty of the challenges that they actually face. The way I framed it was, you know, when you're telling a story, you always have like you need an antagonist. So you know, in the innovation story, the antagonist has been the big corporation that's crushing innovators. And so what I tried to do is I tried to flip that on its head and actually also challenge innovators to say sometimes the challenges you face inside large corporations are challenges you created for yourself so you knew you also need to check how you behave and how you conduct yourself and the approaches you take right to really make sure that you're succeeding in those contexts yeah 
So get, for, for people, I mean, obviously everybody can go to Amazon and, and read, the, read the book intro, but, but what's your elevator pitch on the book? All right. So the elevator pitch on the book is pretty straightforward. It is that a lot of the time when you know, it, people are working on innovation inside large organizations, they tend to try and think of themselves as like pirates, you know, mavericks, buccaneering, breaking new ground. But actually, some of that stuff can be really difficult because what that tends to do is it tends to place innovators in an antagonistic relationship with the very organization that they're depending on for their salaries, their jobs, the resources that they're using. And even sometimes, if you're lucky enough to get an innovation lab, eventually, even the stuff that you're working on in that lab has to be brought back to the mothership for scaling. And so you really need to build a bridge between innovation and the core business. And so the thesis of the book is, how do you build that bridge? How do you become not just a pirate, but a pirate in the Navy? Yeah. So why don't you give us an example? An example of what exactly? So an example of a pirate in the Navy or an example yeah. of an antagonistic innovator? Okay. So, yeah. so let's take, for example, the notion that innovators have to be like entrepreneurs. Right. So one of the companies that I was working with, they thought that the way to drive innovation is to find somebody who founded a startup and then they managed to have a successful exit. And then they brought that person in and they called them an entrepreneur in residence. Now, of course, there was an immediate culture clash with the entrepreneur in residence because the entrepreneur in residence thought they were Elon Musk. So they were walking around telling the company that they're there to save them from disruption. All these MBAs don't know what they're doing. We're going to be the ones that are going to save you from, from you know, we, we, we're the innovators, the entrepreneurs. And so what happened was this, this innovator was creating a necessary tension between the innovation team that he was leading and the organization. And innovation is already hard by itself without people that are actively rooting for you to fail. And so he had created people that were actively rooting for him to fail. And the moment that he recognized this was a few years later when he, he was still struggling to find resources to scale some of the ideas that he had successfully sort of tested and, 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 tried, and tried to implement in the market. Yeah. You know, that really resonates. I'm thinking about the reverse of that. People who can think in terms of working with the Navy, right? Uh, <laughs> Yesterday, yesterday we had a guy on who he, he came out of an innovation team at Ford and went over to Harley Davidson for about seven, eight years. And he kind of got a separate innovation lab and got a little bit of autonomy from the mothership. Okay. Right. And they, they invented a, a really high quality electric bicycle that's mm. within Harley Davidson. Right. And, and to the point where, you know, he got permission to spin it out of the company. Now he's the CEO of this company called Serial One. And it's it's serial one powered by Harley Davidson, and they're going to let him sell the bikes in Harley Davidson dealerships. And, you know, he's got all the brand kind of reinforcement because of it. But he talked a lot about he 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 saw the advantages of letting the head of strategy for real Harley Davidson kind of have the hard conversations about how does this fit with the brand and how do we not cannibalize stuff and how do we, you know, this kind of thing. And then he respected how those guys gave him autonomy to, to go do something different, right? But right. I guess I was a little bit, I don't know, I just had a lot of respect for how humble he was to think about things through their perspective. And yes. I'm, not, I'm not surprised that it didn't get killed, you know, because he's thinking in terms of their interests. 
while still yeah. pushing them a bit. Is that close to what you're talking about or, or what how, what would you have to say about a story like that? That's exactly it. So one of the, so the opposite of that is another innovation team that I was working with in, in, in South Africa and they had invented 13 different MVPs that customers really loved, but they had never had a conversation with anybody in the main business about any of these. So by the time they came to the business and said, can we get resources to scale these? Nobody knew what these things were. Nobody knew how these aligned to the strategy or the direction in which the organization was actually trying to go. And so we often say that beyond being just entrepreneurial and innovative and you know, the ability to see the future and build really great products and services, one of the key characteristics of the really great serial intrapreneurs is political acumen, the ability to build relationships between the work that you're doing and, and the core business. A few examples of that, the South Africa team, after failing with these 13 MVPs, instituted a policy straight away that they would never work on anything that does not have a corporate sponsor. Right? Somebody who's actually like a leader who's kind of making a commitment to try and navigate this through the, you know, the walls of, 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 of the mothership. Another team that I was working with, which is like a, a sort of a, they, they, they manufacture bathrooms and, and showers and, and things like that. They had a really great innovation lab that had a really great practice for every innovation project. There'd be the core innovation team that's based in the lab, which is like three people. And then there'd be the extended team, which is people inside the main organization that come to the lab for one week sprints once a month. And then they go back to the, to the core business. And so this conversation allows them to get information about, you know, what are the constraints? What are the things that, and the organization gets to hear about the innovation work that's happening by these teams that keep coming in and out of the, out, out, out of the lab. And so it's a real great collaborative environment. And so, it's almost like this mixture of autonomy, transparency, collaboration, visibility. You know, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about a pirate in the Navy. So, you know, I know you're primarily based in London, but I'm interested, what kind of advantages do you see in this work having grown up in Zimbabwe? And obviously we're interviewing you in Zimbabwe today, but what kind of advantages do you think you got by the way you grow, you've grown up and then now being in London? Yeah, so, 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 so that's interesting. I'm going to give an academic answer only because I know the academic answer. And I don't know how well that applies to me. But William Maddox, I don't know where he works now, but we published some really great research about how like cross-cultural experiences are really connected to creativity. So the more, the more cultural references, the more knowledge bases you can, he, he, he calls it integrative complexity, which is this ability to take things from various parts of the world and solve the paradoxes and contradictions among them and then produce something something of value. And I think that's what I benefit from. I born and raised in Zimbabwe. I went to university in London. Then I worked at Stanford in Silicon Valley for a little while. And, and then I've also worked all over the world from like Asia to you know, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. So it's a real interesting kind of exposure that then allows you to see multiple things and kind of use those as, as reference points in your work, yeah. Yeah. Any examples of, you know, I think this is great about how I grew up and here's a way I've used it at work. Right. <laughs> huh. So I used to be a rapper. <laughs> so that's one thing. Yes. <laughs> so I used to be a, I, I used to be a rapper. So eh, making music and, you know, writing lyrics and performing. And so I think that experience has been really useful for me in terms of it's made me kind of good with words and it's that's helped me in my writing, but it's also helped in, in my style of writing, which is very kind of loose and kind of personal and kind of flowing and less formal. It's also helped me in my career as a, as a, as a, as a speaker, because that allows me to sort of go out and, and, and kind of speak, you know, freely. I've got that kind of ability. So 
yeah, that's probably what I can refer to at the moment. Sure, sure. So this this kind of innovation and, and creativity and stuff like that, was there anybody you looked up to as a kid that you feel like set the example for you or that you wanted to be like? Yeah, so so it's interesting, right? Because when you grow up as a as a as a as a hip hop head, one of the things that 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 we used to refer to a lot was this concept of the MC, right? The person who commercializes the art so that they can make money, but the art loses its integrity. And the person you respect is the underground MC who is willing to not make as much money but create really great great art. And so some of my heroes, you know, Karis One, Public Enemy, you know, those kinds of groups were really influential in terms of, in, in terms of my thinking and kind of molded me into like, I, I have a, almost like a, an allergic reaction to inauthentic anything. And so even as I wrote Pirate in the Navy, like you be authentic is like, you know, the, these conversations with innovators. Interesting. So I think your interviewing is very interesting, by the way. I love your questions. They're kind of like taking me by surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, One of the things that I'm thinking about, we we're talking a lot about this year, this year on the show is want to structure their business. So it'll be the most attractive to an acquirer, or e- even if they're like passing it on to the kids or the employees or something, they structure a business so that, you know, all these years of work, they actually get the maximum benefit for. And, you know, there's all these principles, like the more the business depends on you, the CEO, the less of a multiple you're going to get because people are worried about, how reliable are these cash flow streams after you leave, right? So yeah, yeah. as you've been talking, one of the thoughts that I've had is, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs who maybe they've run a business for quite a few years and they kind of invented the Navy. Like this is mm. how we do things here, right? And, and you know, maybe they start thinking a little more about their legacy or they think about, you know, if they're maybe more of a venture back, they're thinking about like some big exit, right? Kind of thing. And they start realizing like, ooh, I, I might need to shift this business a little bit so it can not only run without me, but grow without me. Like mm. I need to foster teams who can innovate without alienating their coworkers. I need yeah. to, you know, like, you know, maybe in like a family, family owned business, it's like, we've had this for 30 years. It's been great. But feeling a little vulnerable to like, what's our future story? Why should somebody want to buy this for the next 30 years or something? Right. Yeah. Um, so my question for you is, what if being a pirate in the Navy is like as the owner and like you spent years teaching the Navy how to be this way. And now you're like, man, we need to, we need to create some more like contracted recurring revenue so, mm. so that this valuation can go up instead of me closing the big accounts anymore. Or and any thoughts about that type of pirate in the Navy? Yeah. So that's interesting, right? Because we, we, we strongly believe in the entrepreneurial leader, right? We, we believe that, you know, one of the things that makes an, uh, an entrepreneurial leader, an entrepreneurial leader is, is this ability to create something, create a structure, make it repeatable, scalable, right? You know, drill people in terms of exactly what's supposed to happen. And yet at the same time, keep half an eye on the future. And also understand that exploring the future is management, but a different style of management and that you need to build different teams and different practices for that and somehow keep it all within the same organization, right? And so the bigger challenge with an entrepreneurial leader, especially if they've succeeded at something, is convincing them that they can't pick the winning idea themselves always on day one. Mm. That's the harder conversation because they've really succeeded. And the way I have the conversation, and this makes entrepreneurs really, really angry, is I refer to them to a study by Barclays Bank, they studied over 5,000 startups 
And they only have one question that they were asking. Do entrepreneurs really learn or do they just tell us they do? And, and the way that they, they kind of measured this was they wanted to find out whether or not your chances of success increase on your second startup. So if you've successfully launched a startup before, if you then go to your second startup, is there a correlation between having been a founder before and success? And Barclays Bank found zero correlation. There's no relationship between whether you've been a founder before and whether your next startup becomes 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 um, becomes successful. And do you, Rob know, Sorry, do you know what that study is called, or where people could find that? Well, if you just Google, do entrepreneurs really learn, or do they just tell us they do? I think you'll find that's the title of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and maybe I'll send you the link, and you can put it in the show notes for that. Well, it- it's fascinating that you bring that up. And I want to hear what Barclays say. But as soon as you bring that up, I'm thinking about like Steve Blank, who says all the time, like, the problem with being successful on your last one is lacking the humility on the next one to go do like the kind of discover, you know, customer discovery surveys. And like you guys at Strategizer preach and Steve Blank preaches, they need to get your canvases out and and test all these assumptions and like the potential like the potential arrogance of like i know what i'm doing anyways exactly. what does barclay say exactly and that's it and and, and and the idea is that like no two entrepreneurial situations are alike and so if you take like to this new context most of the time it actually doesn't work rob fitzpatrick who, who wrote the mom test has a really nice critique of of you know entrepreneur entrepreneurs who start coaching other entrepreneurs and he says like you know they could be there could be this terrain that, you know, you're just kind of jumping over. It's like two mountains and then a big crater and then another mountain. And that was their terrain. But your terrain is one mountain, a big crater, and then two mountains on the, on the, on the, on the, on the other side. But this entrepreneur is like jump twice and then do one big leap and then you'll be successful. Right. And then you jump twice, do one big leap and, whew, you know, you actually fail. And so it's just, it's, it's what, 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 what entrepreneurs need to be taking from their experience is, is, is at a much more sort of metacognitive level, which is the practice and process of discovering what works and, and what doesn't work. Those are the things they need to take forward rather than the exact tactical details of what they did for this one idea that, that became successful. And so that's the bigger conversation and always the harder conversation, especially with successful entrepreneurs who, who've actually seen some success in their ideas. Well, and the, the problem is when you're a successful entrepreneur, people start treating you like you're special. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So if yes. you have, at least in my experience, if you have any desire, like, you know, I think about some of my failures when it comes to humility, right? And it's like, if I have any concern about how acceptable I am in society, I can use other people's opinions of me as like a band-aid for any insecurities of myself. And right. then, then there's this temptation to start believing your press clippings. And yes. if you want to believe you're special, you have all sorts of external proof because people treat you different and mm-hmm. you might have mm-hmm. the money to do things that hardly anybody else can do and stuff like that, right? What I'm hearing you say, I want you to correct me, is it's almost like all the things that you learn from success can get so easily canceled out by lack of humility and and like the 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 humility to continue in discovery instead of trust your previous tactics. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. And, and, and Bill Gates says success is a lousy teacher, right? Because it convinces smart people that they can't lose, right? That, that is, that is that's, that's one of the fundamental Bill Gates 
Close. And but what also what success also does and the way it does it is there's two parts. There's the complacency part, which is I got this, right? I know how this works. So I'm just gonna go do this. And then there's also, even when you don't think you got this and you're kind of trying to be careful, there's also the cognitive biases that start to creep in. Like you start to have pattern recognition based on previous patterns, and you're starting to see things inside this new context that are not there, but you recognize them as being there because of because of your previous practice, right? And so these are all challenges that you really have to you have to make yourself you know take a fresh take a take a fresh eye to, towards things. Yeah. There's this uh, great Stoic quote. I want to say it's from Epictetus, where right. he says, "Like it's it's incredibly hard, or like it's impossible for a man to learn something he thinks he already knows." Yes, exactly, absolutely impossible. <laughs> something like that. And, and, and do you know what's interesting? Right, is that like the self help. The self-help movement is really, it's always about people that are failing at something. So, you know, how to lose weight or how to manage your time or how to budget or how to get out of debt and all that. Like the whole like, but there's very little work around how to stop your success from hurting you. Right. It's your next book. That's your next book. <laughs> you, you've decided here. Uh, this is a great idea. I fully yeah. endorse it. And this is, this is, I think, just as big a problem, right? As, as, a lot of people that could sustain their success over a, over a long term, but you know, complacency ends up like getting them, getting them, yeah, getting them so in trouble. Th- thinking about this same scenario again, when you know, when when the entrepreneur who was like the visionary who thought up the business that existed and you know, the blood, sweat and tears to create it, it could be so tempting for them to say, like, oh, to realize the vulnerability of hey, what I built is not going to be as valuable to an acquirer as it is to me, right? Mm-hmm. The private equity fund, the family office, whoever. So mm-hmm. things need to change. And I'm thinking not just the humility, but the patience to say like, how can I help my team figure out the new version instead of me just be the architect and present it to them? Mm-hmm. And any advice on like, not just humility, but patience to to help others, you know, basically yeah. grow some pirate skills. Exactly. So the first thing is, you know, leaders don't pick the winning ideas. They set the context in which the winning ideas emerge. And so the question becomes, you know, what is what do we mean by setting context? And so we say, okay, listen, we don't know exactly what's going to work, but here's the strategic direction that we want to go. We want to explore maybe these two or three questions, but I don't know exactly which ideas are going to be the ones that are going to be successful. So let's just agree on like the criteria that we're going to use to pick the successful ideas. And then we're going to just build like three or four autonomous teams. They can go out and, and, and explore options and then bring us, you know, bring us the evidence. You know, Queen Elizabeth was not going to be the person going out to explore the new colonies herself, right? There had to be people that went to do that. And then those pirates or privateers or explorers, they would then come back with the evidence that there's something of value there. And then when they bring that evidence, then the decision is made, okay, should we send more people? Should we send less people? Should we keep doing this, right? And so I think leaders need to be able to do that, which is just set people out to explore and then use the evidence they bring to make decisions about what what actually happens next. You know, it it leads me to my next question about... Did you read? Did you read the either the Netflix books, the the Reed Hastings one that came out last year, or his his chief people officer Patty? I can't remember hers. I think it was called Powerful a couple of years earlier. No, though, but the one from last year is on my is is on cue. Okay, I, I I haven't quite got to it yet. Yeah. So for me, I, I'm interested in any. I want, I want some coaching from you here, okay? So okay, okay, okay. I think about two methodologies that are really appealing to me. Okay. Mm-hmm. One is this guy named Bob Chapman. He wrote a book called um, Everybody Matters. He, he yeah. runs a company called Barry Way, Way Miller, where they've used lean, 
but not in terms of cost saving. The way they approach operational excellence is reducing employee frustration and they get a ton of buy-in, okay? Because who doesn't want their job to be better, right? And just happens to be better for customers and save the company money too, right? And he has like the same compound annual growth rate as Warren Buffett. He has like 23% compound annual growth rate. They've grown the business to like 2.3 billion in revenue. He's done a hundred, he's done over a hundred acquisitions with a 100% success rate of integration. And it's this like, hey, the improvements you create are not going to get you fired. We think about this like a family and that kind of stuff, right? But in many ways, it's much more like industrial businesses, like they're not inventing Netflix, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so you got to take that with a grain of salt. And I love this idea of we need to care about everybody. We need to take care of everybody. We find a place for people stuff. But then there's this other thought of like the way Netflix does it, where they say like, hey, we're going to treat this like a pro sports team. And if you're the right person for this job, we'll pay you whatever it takes to get LeBron James for this team, right? right? right. But at the point we're no longer playing that sport, like you may not have a job here anymore. You'll get good compensation, like a good severance, but like, this is what you're signing up for. You're not signing up for lifetime employment. You're signing up to be a star on our team. Now this doesn't apply to their clerical staff or something like this, right? And it's much more like, like, you know, the special mission unit in the US special operations, you know, the most classified intelligence counter uh, terrorism teams where it's like, they're really nuts about selection. Like, yeah. you know, 80% of people wash out of being trying out for Navy SEALs, like 95% of people wash out trying to get into the special mission unit from the army, okay? Wow. And then once you're there, they train you like crazy so that they can trust you to go make decisions without the general or the colonel barking in your ear every five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this side of me that's like, that says like, I wanna believe we can do everything with the people we've got and treat them like a family and turn our existing people into the pirates to to grow. And then there's like the honesty in me of like, sometimes people took a boring, reliable job, not boring, but you mean they took a consistent, reliable job because that's what they were interested in. And me deciding they need to be an entrepreneur may not be appropriate or smart. And so like this decision of when is it my existing team that's going to invent this? And at what point do I need to potentially hire for, for skill sets we don't have? I'm interested in any thoughts you have about that balance beam. So, so there's a potential lens that you could use to sort of analyze that, right? Which is the, the type of innovation. So the way you described the first example, sounds like most of those innovations are incremental. So they're kind of like efficiency innovations where you're improving current processes and, and, the, and the metric is reduction of employee frustration, right? So, so you know, we just, the way we do this and the way we, and that's a way to create returns that you can get compound growth of 23% doing just that. Like that's a way to live life. And in that context, of course, you're, you know, you're in a clerical role. I'm, you know, the, the innovations are to make your clerical role better. I'm not asking you to become a Navy SEAL, right? So it's, that's a way to work. And it, 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 interestingly, from a lean startup perspective, trying to take the crazy Netflix approach to that type of innovation is waste because there's a level of predictability and a level of reliability and a level of systematic way of, of, of actually working there is a less chaotic, a less chaotic in, uh, environment. If you then move towards like sustaining and transformational innovations, which are more the crazy plays 
then you start to look for LeBron James and you start to look for specific skill sets and people that are crazy and people that are willing to try stuff and fail, people that are comfortable with ambiguity, like spending two years not knowing exactly how this is going to turn out, but you're happy to come to work every day and that excites you. Like that's a specific kind of person. And as you train and if you train up those people, you they really do need the autonomy to be able to make decisions at the edge without having to call back to the mothership every time. And so you do need to sort of push them out to the edge and, and just allow them to do that. And as they come back and give you evidence, you can make even better decisions and so i believe that every organization so 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 then the question becomes should a company have a balance of both things or all three types of innovation or should a company decide that they're only going to be expert at one all right and i believe that in the modern era you do need companies that are good at both extremes that can have this family calm happy atmosphere and the efficiency innovation part for people that want the stable, predictable job. And then also somehow integrate the crazy, you know, maverick pirate type folks within the same organization. That really resonates with me because I think when it comes to doing better at what we already do, the existing staff are probably mm -hmm. the best experts. They're the ones who deal with it in and out. They're the ones who go like, we don't really need to file this in triplicate. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, right? They're... <laughs> They're actually the experts on that. And their background actually, you know, is is probably better than any of us at the top of the organization. They're the one actually, mm -hmm. you know, they're the boots on the ground. They're the ones closest, to, close, you know, they know what alligator, alligators are closest to the boat, right? Exactly. <laughs> and yet you're right. Like that, that idea of like, I guess for me, it almost divided when you're saying that divided into like, are we trying to do better? That should probably be our existing team. And are we trying to do different? Well, maybe, you know, maybe we need to be looking at, are these the right people for different? Yeah, you know, like exactly. the guy, the Harley Davidson guy yesterday started Serial One. He said when he was recruiting for his team, he went around. I was like, how do you separate between like the people that interview well versus the people that will actually do well in this? Right. He's like, he's like, yeah, because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that want to yeah. say they're doing innovation. Right. But when it comes to like the risk of actually launching something, there's a million excuses in big companies not to launch. So yes, I thought his his modality for recruiting was really great. He went around and talked to people and tried to find people who had a side gig. They were actually doing something on the side of work. And he, had, he had evidence of them yeah. being like that. Or like the people that had a reputation of having their fingers in all these different pots and, you know, that were consistently mm -hmm. being part of the innovative stuff. You know, yeah. instead of interviewing well, what's the evidence of their background? And anyways, what do you think of my better versus different and yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the distinction that you need to make. There's this whole notion that like innovation has to be everywhere and everybody has to be an innovator, but that really doesn't make sense. Like there's questions about like, you know, what are the various kinds of innovation that, that, that a company needs to do and that we need to figure out how to do stuff better, but we also need to figure out how to, how to do stuff different. Now, you could select from your existing team the kind of people that are able to go and do things differently but you would need to be selective in the way that you're describing, you know, do they already have side gigs? Are they, are they, you know, are they, are they unhappy with the routine and they want always to sort of disrupt things, you know? So those are the kind of things that you're kind of looking for as you start to build those teams. And, and that distinction matters. I think the thing that I, I would like to just push back on, not to push sure, back sure. on, but, but to make, to make a statement that's very clear is 
some people often refer to doing things better as not being real innovation and to doing things different as being real innovation. And yet a company always needs to do both. And both are innovation. They're just different types of innovation that require a different skill set and, and, and knowledge. It is true. There's like a snobbiness, right? Yeah. Oh, bet, yeah. you know, better just incremental. Better, yeah, you know, right. right? And, yeah. and yet, how many people trying to do different don't have a track record that rivals Warren Buffett's right. compound annual growth, right? Do you know what no, I mean? I mean like, I the guy that you were just describing, right? I, I forget the name now. Bob Chapman. Bob, Bob, Bob Chapman, right? He gets the 23% return on just doing, doing for like, better. For like 20 years in a row or like 25 years in a row. Like it wasn't like three years in a row. Do you know what I mean? Right. So that's, that's valuable and that's important, right? I mean, one way to deal with disruption risk is to do things better. Another way is to do things different. And doing things different is a high level of risk and failure, right? For every 10, you might get one idea that actually works. Doing things better has got a more guaranteed return. Doing things better is also often easier for large organizations to do. And so like looking down the nose of the people who are doing better as if they're not doing something valuable is not, is not a great thing. But the opposite, just trying to do things better. Sometimes, as Alex likes to say, it's, it's a way to more efficiently go out of business. <laughs> you're kind of you know, efficiently going out of business. So these are, you have to balance both things and you need both things inside your organization. So Strategizer is a pretty interesting company for, at least for me, what's it been like to be over there? It's been a mixture of joy and drinking out of a fire hose, right? It's, there's a specific philosophy that drives the organization, which is that everything is fundamentally rooted in a deep knowledge of how things really work from a, from a, from, from a level of academic rigor and a level of like applied practice and experience that is used to build the tools. And yet at the same time, the tools themselves are supposed to be so simple to use that it looks like they're not really based on that level of depth. And so like watching Alex and Eve navigate that complexity of like filtering down the real core elements that are necessary for, for, for designing value propositions and then just building this tool. And so one of the frustrating things I think about dealing with strategizer tools is because the tools are so simple to use, people think that they're simplistic in, in terms of conceptualization. And that, and, and that misconception is something that we kind of, you know, are always facing as a, as, a, as a challenge. So that's really like where like the fun and the joy of that work has been. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, the impact of, it's almost like, to me, it feels like simplicity on the other side of complexity. Like they learn it so well. <laughs> I think about this, like when we, when I used to run a private equity fund, mm. we were hiring different engineers to deal with technical problems and opportunities we were looking at. And it was like, if I asked somebody how it worked and the engineers going, starts using these big, long words and he, and he finishes off with like, it's really complicated, but, but it works. Right. The guy who like could break it down to me, like I was in elementary school, mm-hmm. like that was the guy that you knew actually knew his stuff, right? Yes. When he could when he can compare it to a simple analogy that anybody can understand, when he can, you know, break through all this stuff and pull it back to these essential levers that need to get pulled or, you know, like, hey, there's a million variables and here's the three most important that are the starting place for all of this, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And the thing about simplicity on the other side of, 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 of complexity is that you need to have the patience to go through the complexity to get to this, the other side. And that is the drinking from the fire hose part that I was that I was kind of describing to you, which is like Alex and Eve are happy to spend months 
just going through the complexity, leaving it for a while, coming back to it, going through the, leaving it for a while, coming back to it, go, until they get to the point where they're like, all right, so this is, we're now on the other side, here are the real elements. And then even then testing that with, with people and, and, and users and coming back and dealing with the complexity again, like that whole thing is fascinating and overwhelming. It's, it's like magic, but it's not magic. It's, it's, it's really interesting to work with strategy though, yeah. I feel like the point of today's interview is like the humility to stay in discovery mode and the patience for how long that's going to take. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, the patience for how long that's going to take, I think. It's almost like a life, a lifelong thing, right? It's, it's like a lifelong thing, this to never be, to always feel like any throne they put you on is so uncomfortable, you have to get up. You're like, you're not going to allow yourself to, to sit on it and like start to feel it and, you know, bask in the adulation. Like you, that makes you really, really uncomfortable. And I, and, I, and I really feel that need to continuously get better and continuously come up with better and better ways to sort of codify innovation practice is really what's driving the work that we're doing. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think about real pureblood entrepreneurs, how often we get described as like overly optimistic, overly self-confident, you know, to ignore the statistics and try something and like impatient for progress to actually crack the whip and get something done and work the extra hours and stuff. And so it feels like a natural tension there of like, you need enough, enough self-confidence and optimism to try something that statistically, you know, doesn't look like a good bet, right? Mm-hmm. I say that, but you know what, with enough humility to keep discovering and with enough patience, which might mean enough funding to be patient, Yes, it doesn't necessarily have to be a low probability experience being an entrepreneur, does it? No, it does not necessarily have to be. And also the optimism to think that you might be successful does not have to be combined with the delusion that you're invincible. Right? Like, And that's what we tend to think entrepreneurs are like, but that's not necessarily the case. Like entrepreneurs are optimistic that they're going to figure it out. And then they have the discipline to figure it out. And and that's really where, where it is. I'm not saying I'm going to be successful straight away with my first idea or the first way that I think it's going to work. But I do believe that there's a way that we can figure this out. And that belief in the way to figure it out is really what we we, we try and coach teams to, to work on. You know, what's funny is th- this summer, I will have started my first business 20 years ago, right? And I, you know, I've had, I don't know, 12 or 14 businesses. Most were total failures. A couple made a lot of money, right? <laughs> and it's been interesting specifically since my interviews with Steve Blank and, and Alex, and, and we had another guy on the show this fall named David Kidder. They really were pushing me on customer discovery. I was pitching them, hey, here's what I'm working on next. And they're like, oh, great. Why don't you go do some more customer discovery calls, Jess? <laughs> right? And it's interesting. I feel like I feel like a beginner all over again. And yeah. I feel like what it's evolving for more in my head, and I'd love to hear what you think of this mentality, is like, it's like I need to move more from trusting my idea to trusting the process, the discovery process of like, I don't need to have confidence that I know what to do. It's like, I have confidence that if I repeatedly follow the, you know, customer discovery model, use the business model canvas. And, you know, like, it's like what Clay Christensen talks about in competing against luck and like Bob Mesta, you know, with the jobs to be done, demand side 101 of like, that I can have faith in the process. I don't need to have arrogance in my ideas, the idea. Exactly. Right. The score takes care of itself, right? Bill Walsh, right. Which is you follow the process, 
you, you follow the system out and then the school will actually take care of itself. Because I, whenever I'm, I'm coaching teams, I'm like, get a tattoo, right? That says nobody in the world woke up this morning thinking about my idea about me. <laughs> Everybody else in the world woke up thinking about their problems, their challenges, things they're trying to get better in their life. And the quicker you move to that side of the conversation, the more likely you are to succeed with whatever idea that you're actually working on. And so you people have to trust the process. And that's always the hardest thing. And people will say stuff to you like, well, you know, Colonel Sanders was 69 and he had a thousand rejections before he he found somebody to give him whatever. Right. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's that's a true story, but that's actually an outlier. That's why we tell the story. <laughs> What actually, what has actually happened to a lot of people like Colonel Sanders is they've been rejected, 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 and they've died still being rejected. Like that's a more likely outcome. And so we, as Eric Reese says, like we want people to persevere, but not to persevere by driving the plane into the wall. We want them to persevere by actually figuring out what works and learning and, and navigating and changing and shifting until they really find the right path. Yeah, it's kind of like persist in adaptation, persist yes. in like think about it like more like an archaeologist right right uncover uncovering what they'll pay for you know well yeah and the, and the trick of archaeology is to figure out when to use the little brush right and when to use the <laughs> the pickaxe the pickaxe so that you you know what I mean? so that's the like an entrepreneur is always like figuring that out and doing the dance to, to try and learn like what works versus what doesn't work right yeah well, I know we're kind of winding down here. I'm interested in any thoughts. You know, there's there's a lot of people passionate about this space. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of books that come out. There's a lot of people, however, that don't get their book picked for Thinkers 50, that don't get hired at places like Strategizer, that that haven't had the success that you've had. If you've done anything different, what, what do you think you've done different that's helped you achieve what you've achieved? So that's interesting, right? In terms of like, is it me or is it some sort of luck, right? It's um... Or probably a combination. In reality, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it's almost like I, I believe in mastery. So I believe that if you, if you pick something, be, become really good at it, like get, get really good at the craft. And, and so I really got focused on trying to get good at, at corporate innovation and figuring out what works and, 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 and what doesn't work. And I spent hours and hours working with teams, coaching teams, failing. One day sitting in my car saying, I'm never going to do this again. Like I'm not coming back to coach this team again and driving home. Then like going through it over and going, all oh, right, that's what I'm doing wrong. And then going back the next day. And so like, as you, as you get to this level of mastery, the serendipitous moment is when I'm about to go on stage to talk about the book, The Corporate Startup. And the only reason why Alex Osterwalder would ever listen to me speak is because he's getting mic'd up to go on after me. If he was like two speakers before me, he wouldn't even be in the hall. He'd be doing something else. And so and then him watching me and seeing that actually this is a person who has a level of expertise and knowledge and could be a valuable asset to, to, to strategize a, becomes that combination of where your, your mastery meets opportunity. And then you just sort of dive into, in, into the opportunity. But if Alex Altamaldo was being mic'd up before me and I went on stage and didn't do things that are useful, he would just go, okay, I would never work with that guy. Yeah. And, that's an interesting mix right there. So, and th- there's certainly elements of luck in everyone's story. And, but there's also increasing probabilities for serendipity to happen by the things right. we can control. Exactly. When you think about the things that you could control, a lot of people work hard. A lot of people write books. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people that do things that you did. And then there's some things that you did that other people didn't do. What do you, what do you think you might've done more of? You might've done differently that, that you would attribute your edge to. Yeah, so I mean, so there is the, the so there is the mastery piece, 
And then there was the piece where I suddenly realized that I was not in the cold, cold, cold sales business. I was in the gravity business. I was in the business of having people actually seek me out. And the best way for people to seek me out was to establish my expertise. And so I decided that every single morning of my day, every single day, I, you know, I get up 5, 6 a.m. And the first two, three hours of my, of my, of my work, reputation building. I have it on my Trello board, all the tasks that are related to reputation building, writing for Forbes, writing for the Strategizer blog, recording blog um, podcasts with folks like yourself, all of these things. I really, really focused on those things. And then the, the ultimate metric on the other side that you measure is how many inbound requests are you then getting to do to actually do work? Because the kind of work that I do, if the company is not asking you to help them innovate, it's already hard. So they need to have invited you before they can allow you to coach them. And so you, that's something that may be a little bit different to how other folks work, but that's something that I, I've really, really focused on in a, in, a, in, a, in a disciplined way. So thinking about that business, writing books, speaking, you know, on, on your website, which everybody should go check out. And, and Tendai Viki for everybody is T-E-N-D-A-Y-I. And his last name is V-I-K-I.com. You can see his books, you can see his speaking opportunities, his blogs and stuff. I'm interested in your philosophy, though, Tendai. When you think about what you choose to write or how you choose, you know, the tone you take or the whatever, how do you think about helpfulness or impact or resonance or, like, what's the filter that you're putting stuff through to decide I should write that, I should say that? Yeah, so I think <laughs> the polite word is challenger. I like to be a challenger. Alex also likes to say I'm the only person he knows with the with the with the with the with the bravery to call people idiots to their face, but but I never call people idiots to their face. My my the thing that triggers me is always no, don't do it that way. That's dangerous. Do it this way, and then I and then I just like I have to write about it. When you're having conversation with your leaders, don't tell them that you're Elon Musk. You're not. When you're when you when you're sending your teams to do work, don't send them out there to do without strategy because that's not going to work. So whenever I see like little holes in the way that people are doing things that are you know killing their success, that's what triggers me to write. And then I just write. I remember true story. I kid you not. When I sent in the first draft of the first chapter of the corporate startup. The folks that gave me feedback were like, why does this read very differently from your blog? In your blog, you're much more personal, much more relaxed and much more loose. But you've suddenly taken this formal tone with your book that makes it really hard to read. And I suddenly realized that actually the thing that works really well for me is like the way I'm speaking to you right now. That's the way I'm going to write, even when I'm writing a book. And that is what then starts to resonate with the audience. Yeah. You know, so I've I've started three different books. And I, yeah. I'm finally, maybe it's four. Anyways, I'm getting to this point where I'm deciding, okay, which one am I going to commit to and finish, right, right? Right, right? And as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, this idea of like selling vitamins is a terrible idea. Selling pain pills is a great idea, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. I can see like, as you're saying that challenger thing, and I'm thinking about like, you know, most entrepreneurial CEOs, they have a sense of, they have a sense of an exit or they know somebody else who sold. And there's kind of this like vague belief, well, if we're making good money, we should be able to sell for a good amount. Yes, but there's, yeah. there's like, at least the ones that I talk to who have sold, you know, less than two or three businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Most of them mm -hmm. have never sold any businesses. There is this, like, there's this like vague unease of like, how exactly does that happen? And like, what happens to my employees and their stock options? And how does that all go down? And 
And like they they've heard these numbers of so-and-so got 3x or so-and-so got 10x, but they don't know what pulled those levers or not, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking like, man, I probably need to lead more with hey, the way you might be headed off a cliff because you don't realize the tax implications of not being an S corp or not being a C corp. And some Mm -hmm. of those decisions need to be made 26 or 30, you know, 24 or 36 months beforehand for the IRS to count them. You know, know, the difference between paying 20% tax on this versus 50% tax on this sale. And like, what does that mean for the rest of your life? And your Mm long-term, you know, passive income, if you're buying some commercial real estate or something afterwards, you know, like, and yeah. that challenger hey. thing of like, go ahead. Yeah. Or, hey, so, so something you said earlier, hey, you think that being a rock star CEO is what's going to get you 10x, but actually that's a risk that will actually make you get 2x because people are people worrying about what all of these things that you're saying, those are really important challenges that you can sort of put into a, and really direct and like speak like that to folks, right? Like really give them that kick up the butt that they need to really make the right decisions. Yeah. Like how being a rock star CEO like Elon Musk might make your company less sellable. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, yeah, one thing, yeah, but looking well, at one thing Musk, that, I think that's what you need to do, right? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, because if you're just a tyrant with a thousand helpers for stealing a line from good to great, that right. that's not that transferable, right? No. You know, one of the things that I will say has got a bunch of people's attention is the statistics that like 75% of entrepreneurs end up being unhappy with their sale afterwards. Mm. And it is largely due to two things, you know, so it could be like, the two thing the you know the two biggest reasons seventy five percent of entrepreneurs I'm thinking clickbait here right the two, <laughs> the two biggest reasons seventy five percent of entrepreneurs are unhappy after selling their company right yeah, yeah and it's like one of them is they didn't plan for the next adventure and human happiness is often related to progress and like mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. they've golfed every day for three months straight this lack of progress makes them depressed okay right. And, you know, the loss of identity and stuff like with that. But the other one is looking back, realize, realizing they could have just structured some things different and got significantly higher reward for all those years of work and feeling like they left so much on the table Mm -hmm. afterwards when like they unnecessarily left it on the table by not doing some things different structurally, you know, and anyways, so that's really helpful to me. So thanks. Cool. That's good. (laughs) Hopefully that was helpful. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, this has been really fun for me. What what do you want to leave people with? What should we close with? I don't know. I think, you know, always seeking to be authentic and truthful, I think is one of the more important characteristics of being an innovator, in particular, because regardless of how strongly you believe in your own idea, the customers will do whatever they think is valuable for them. And sometimes it's better to learn that sooner and, and then use that to inform the decisions that you're going to make. So I think the more authentic we are, the better. And corporate innovators have a way of getting away with you know in inauthenticity because they're kind of buffered from that natural feedback loop that an entrepreneur always gets because they have to put food on the table. Whereas an innovator has got a salary. And so their project failing or succeeding is not really connected to you know economic outcomes for them. And so they really need to have a philosophy that informs their behavior in terms of authentic authentic innovation or authentic approaches to, to their project. You know, maybe I, I really like that. I, I wrote a note here <laughs> to quote you this, regardless of how good I think my idea is, the customer is going to do whatever, what's ever valuable to them. That's like a humility trigger for me to keep yeah. doing discovery, right? 
maybe my last question then is if you could go back and give yourself some advice from before you wrote your books, before you were doing all the speaking. And by the way, on tendaiviki.com, people can people can check out your YouTube videos and and speak yeah. speeches you've done. Everybody check those out. But before you were doing the speeches, before you're writing the books, before you're writing for Forbes and strategizer blog and stuff like that, based on your experience now, what advice would you give yourself embarking on that? I think the advice that I would give myself is it's interesting, right? You know, you try and tell someone like start the journey, but you're not going to end up where you think you're going. Like when I, when I began the journey, I didn't think I'd end up a strategizer. I thought I'd end up somewhere else. But, you know, starting is actually really important. Even, even when you have incomplete facts, right? You have to sort of step in and then, and then sort of navigate your way systematically through, through what you need to do. And, and I've always found myself being really impatient for, for for whatever I thought was going to be the right thing for me. And then it turned out that actually the thing that emerged from, from doing the work was actually even big, greater and better than what I was imagining for myself. And so get started, but yeah, so this is the advice. I now have it figured out. Get started, but don't think you're going to end up where you think you're going. <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of be okay with that, huh? Yes, you have to be okay with that. And that's the thing about ideas, which is, if you hold on to the idea, it'll choke you. Yeah. The well, idea is that you're going to get started and then you have to find out what works after that. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for this. This is a really fun interview. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I really enjoyed it too. Okay, everybody, go get your copy of Pirates in the Navy. <laughs> thanks for Thank listening. www.tendivicky.com.